0: The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash-like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong.
1: Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our special mini-series from The Curbsiders on medical education.
2: I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krzynovska, and we have an amazing recap episode today. We are recording from AIM 2023 in Austin, Texas. Yes. Thank you to the Alliance for welcoming
1: us to this amazing conference. And we're so excited to sit down with some of the speakers and some of the faculty of AIM and just really dive into the pearls and and wisdom we learned these few days. Before we dive into that, Ira, do you want to talk about what we usually do on the show?
2: Of Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And again, we are so pumped to be sitting down with many of the AIM members and uh, leadership members and participants for this conference and people who coordinated and created workshops. So really lucky to have the group today. And we are so excited to be sitting down with Drs. Montgomery, Cheda, Cahill, and Spencer to talk about kind of our pearls from uh, AIM 2023.
1: Well, thank you all so much for sitting down with us today. We're so excited to chat. Um, Dr. Montgomery, we'll start with you. Are you okay if we call you Anne for this recording? That would be great. Thank you. Could you share a quick one-liner about what you're doing professionally and maybe something outside of medicine as well?
0: Of course. Um, so I am Dr. Anne Montgomery. I am a primary care physician and um, associate program director for a brand new residency program in Northwest Arkansas based at Washington Regional Medical Center and affiliated with the University of Arkansas. And so... Uh, professionally, I spend most of my time taking care of my own patients and just preparing for the arrival of our fantastic first class of residents in July. Ooh. Outside of work, um, I've been trying to get into gardening a little bit more. I've never really had a green thumb, but currently have some kale and chard and strawberries that my mother-in-law has informed me may have been eaten by squirrels while I've been here, but um, we're, we'll see. We're fingers crossed. <laughs>
3: I can't believe your garden is growing already. We still have snow in the ground in Madison, Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, it's not quite Austin-level temperatures. Um, but we're, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> And those of you listeners
1: who are just listening on the podcast, that was uh, Dr. Shelby Chada, who we're very happy to have joined us for
3: this as well. Um, Dr. Cheda, could you just share a
1: little bit about yourself?
3: Sure, absolutely. So um, I am working at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where there's still snow on the ground. My husband tells me, <laughs> so that that's that part of it. Uh, my professional role there is associate dean of medical education, and um, so I oversee curriculum and assessment for medical students, which is very connected to why I'm here today, and. I'm a practicing general internist. Um, I also uh, have been privileged to serve as chair of the board for the Alliance of Academic Internal Medicine. And what do I, oh my gosh, so many different interests outside of work, a little bit of this, a little bit of that over time. Um, And Dr. Cahill, thanks for
1: joining us as well. Uh, Are you okay if we call you Kate today? Yes, please. Wonderful. And could you share a
4: little bit about yourself? Sure. Well first, thank you so much for having me. I am also a general internist and clinician educator. I am based at Albert Medical School at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. My clinical work is a mix of inpatient and outpatient care. I also serve as the clerkship director for our third year medical students and for the residency, I'm part of the core faculty. Awesome, Kate. And could you
2: share something about yourself, um, maybe non-medical related or an interest you have? Sure. Outside of work, I love spending my time baking, trying out new recipes,
4: and counteracting that with running.
2: (laughs) It's a good balance. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, maybe um, we were hoping in these kind of Pearl episodes to recap um, workshops, uh, other kind of parts of the conference that you may have attended and have some take home points for our listeners. Uh, Maybe Kate, do you mind starting us off with uh, things that you wanted to share? Sure. I'd love to share
4: something that I learned at the wellness pre-course. First, it was wonderful to spend an entire day just thinking about and being immersed in all things well-being related. One thing that I thought was super helpful is the idea that no matter what our formal roles are, that we're all leaders if we impact other people. And one of the take-home messages I learned is about how important it is to set boundaries, but how in our role as leaders, we also need to help other people set boundaries. And it really made me think about my clerkship team um, helping people set some limits on their work days. When they need to respond to emails from me. Um, it made me realize I, I could give people some more permission uh, to set a little more boundaries around their work. An aspirational
1: goal
3: for myself, but. Yeah. <laughs> but really important to highlight. Um, You know, we were talking a little bit about um, the pre-courses. So I actually also got to go to a pre-course, and it was on women in medicine in leadership development. And it was amazing. It was like a full day of all kinds of little magic pearls on different things. But one of the super interesting things they focused on was how to really kind of lean into the things that didn't go well, and those things that we kind of quote, unquote, call failures but um, how much we can learn from those things and really try to pivot from those lessons learned of our failures and how we can talk about them more, because those aren't just the things we tend to talk about and really, really share. So I think what I'm going to take home, really, is, is just trying to put it out there more, you know, this whole construct of vulnerability and how much we can learn from that and, and getting rid of some of that, the shame involved in that. So.
1: In that vein, uh, one of our favorite questions to ask guests is, do you have a
3: favorite failure that you'd feel comfortable sharing?
1: <laughs> and what did you learn from it? Oh, my
3: gosh. I, um, I've always worked full time and I have a son. He is now 20. Um, but the interesting thing is you would kind of think about a lot of like, oh, how do you do this work thing and this mom thing together? And that's often an area of struggling with like, can I do either one or am I failing at both type feeling? Well, to make a very long story short, I had um, applied for a position I really, really wanted at my institution. And um, my family knew I wanted it, my son, my husband, et cetera. And I didn't end up getting it. And, and that was a tough experience. You know, I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now, et cetera. Well, lo and behold, I end up going to, you know, you go to events at your child's school and they pull out the folder on stories they've written. And he had written a story about that. And he had written a story about how he was so proud of his mom for trying and it's okay she didn't get what she wanted and da-da-da-da-da. Could that have been a better success as a mom moment ever? You know, and how these things just cross over in your life. Yeah. So anyways, that's just a super yeah. special story. That was beautiful. Yeah. Aww. And just for the record, he's a <laughs> super special kid <laughs> who isn't afraid of failing yeah. and just continuing on
0: and then being incredibly successful, you know? And it's recognizing just-
2: your own sharing. Like, he recognized that you shared that you wanted this thing. Like, you named that want and need, and that's just really beautiful. I promise I'm like going to stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> really good.
3: So, anyways, yeah, it was a great, it was a great leadership workshop session. And, and again, I love this space. Thank you guys for just having this space so that we can just share this stuff.
2: Well, I think a lot of people also talk about like their failure CV and things that kind of have come up and being more open and sharing those things with whoever kind of mm-hmm. you're in, you know interacting with, mentees, near peers, like being able to just, as you said, should be like that vulnerability and role modeling it. Um, and do you wanna share maybe some pearls from workshops you've attended? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of my uh, goals in coming to this
0: conference were to reconnect with great people like you all. And, um, you know, as we're starting this program, want to be able to lay the foundation for a really successful um, ambulatory experience because that's where my focus is. And so um, I got to attend a couple of really great workshops um, over the last few days, Um kind of top of my mind, some of our colleagues over at Mainline Health outside of Philadelphia um, led a great workshop this morning on just transforming uh, continuity clinic and the ambulatory rotation and really highlighted the kind of one of their goals in doing so was recognizing the huge shortage of primary care physicians that were anticipated to have. And they saw what their graduating residents were doing and None of them were going into primary care. And so how do we create a better continuity clinic experience for them so that they want to do primary care? And I think, you know, they they benefited from having huge institutional buy-in at their health system, um, which, they, which they definitely highlighted. I think a couple of key takeaways for me is that, you know, I benefit also from having some of those close relationships in this new program and the importance of kind of maintaining them over time so that I can... Advocate for the resources in clinic that my residents need. Um, trying to um, ensure so kind of stakeholder buy-in is a big one. Um, really focusing on what are the big drivers of dissatisfaction in your particular clinic because there are a lot of things that are I think uh, shared among all all training programs, but maybe unique to your particular practice. And really identifying those and targeting your interventions there um, and. Uh, And that it takes time, I think, you know, none of these things happen overnight or even within a given academic year. Theirs took about five years, but um, they've seen some really good outcomes. And I think for me, it's like we haven't even started. So how do we, you know, how do we make sure that the residents have the staff that they need to support them? Um, how do we make sure that we in, it, we get continuity with their patients? Because that's another huge driver of resident satisfaction. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is how do we make our, you know, electronic health record and some of those other things Um work for our residents. And so I'm trying to put in the work now. So yeah, it was great to just get some ideas. And also I think just commiserate a little bit that like Mm. clinic is hard and we all want it to be better and it
3: can. So that was exciting. Yeah. And it's so important. I mean, you know, our country needs primary care physicians, right? We have to get their training right and get those settings right. So... Yeah, that's awesome.
0: And I also always think about, you know, even for programs where people aren't going into primary care, framing it as like everyone has to practice in the ambulatory setting, almost everybody. And so, how do we right. how do we succeed and provide good care for our patients? So, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, we want to hear in five years how it's gone. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll let you know. I'll give you an update. Yes. Send some resident, or some graduating residents back to UCSF for uh, yes, <laughs> okay. internal medicine jobs because it's it's really tough. I mean, none of our I work in primarily with categorical residents, and none of them definitely want to do primary care. But even in the primary care tract, I mm. mean, very few choose to go into primary care. And they, they tell me, your job looks impossible and unsustainable, mm. and the inbox is terrible. Mm-hmm. And,
0: um, yeah, and we didn't even cover that in the session. But yeah. it was really, you know, it was about uh, office efficiency and, um, you know, continuity and just some of those other things that are really important.
2: And the factors that you have control over. You know, we Mm -hmm. talk about people operating to the top of their license. It's like, how do I have an EMR that operates the top of its license? You know, the things that are actually going to make my job easier as opposed to create more barriers and pain points.
3: Yeah. And shall we, any other sessions that you attended that you really enjoyed? You know, it's so hard. There's so many. One of the things I love every year at this meeting is um, there's an update, basically, on kind of a lot of the um, medical education scholarship that has happened across the year. And um, some of uh, the CDIM folks did one today. Uh, One of the articles they presented that I absolutely loved um, was um, about uh, it was a great evaluation of looking at time for evaluations to come in. Um, and looking using a qualitative um, st- tool that um, has been validated to look at the quality of those evaluations that come in, in particular the narrative pieces of it. And they found this correlation of how long it took from the student being done when the evaluation was put out to when it was actually submitted. And the study demonstrated that the quality of the evaluation goes down over time, which of course in some ways is like not rocket science, Um, but it was so interesting just to see the data completely match that. So that part I wasn't surprised about. The thing that was also interesting um, when they looked at that is in terms of the actual assessors and um, the um, gender of the assessors, women got statistically higher quality of evaluation scores on the forms they filled in. The good news was when they looked at the gender of the students, they didn't see any difference in terms of the impact of the gender of the students related to the quality of the evaluation that came in. So that was kind of interesting results of of one study that they presented. So I'm taking that one home because I have lots of faculty that I need to show that to.
1: Yeah, Shelby, I thought that that study was so valuable and
0: and so timely to think about um and we
1: we just just
0: that you know we always learn as evaluators like what is the the smart feedback or those are smart Mm -hmm. goals but you know just like the timeliness right and that there's data to support that it actually matters that giving feedback in almost real time or near time is much more important
1: This is a perfect segue to Kate's talk. Um, You guys did a workshop on ways of improving feedback and you really talked about how to keep it timely and do it effectively.
4: We did. So I was part of a team that got to present on some different faculty development strategies that we've tried to help improve the quality and quantity of the feedback residents receive and then the evaluations that we receive on the flip side. And I guess, I would start from a place of thinking we have this really engaged, wonderful faculty um, who views feedback and evaluation for residents as an important piece of their job. And when we survey them, they want to do better about it. And yet we're still having trouble um, helping people just get the work done. And I honestly think it's really a matter of just the time and workload. So we looked at could we do simple initiatives that could help people overcome that. So one of the things um, one of my colleagues did was develop a series called Five in Five. And so these are five different five minute uh, PowerPoint presentations that are audio slideshows. Faculty can listen to them on their own time. That gives them great pearls for how to rate residents in the era of Milestones 2.0. So we acknowledge that most of us who are current medical educators did not train um, with the same milestones and competency-based framework. So we all need to learn Um, how to better assess residents with that system. So that was one thing we tried. Um, A different colleague tried uh, developing a system where we have these very brief feedback cards that we do with our residents so that it's a shared decision-making process on what goals any given resident is going to work on during a rotation. And that project is still underway, but so far has some really good preliminary data. And I helped with the third piece of the project, which was just helping faculty members create uh, routines and organizational frameworks and tips and tricks so that they know what information we're looking for on any particular type of evaluation, ways to record that information, and then synthesize it and get it submitted on time. And we keep emphasizing that a completed um, but good evaluation is better than the elusive, perfect, but never completed evaluation.
3: That is so online with what we just talked about with the study, right? That even though you think you're going to do it better later, Mm. you don't. Mm-hmm. And that's
2: been born by, born out in the literature. Kate, I wonder, just as somebody who loves a good routine and a, a good structure, could you share some of those tips, like kind of concrete, practical tips for faculty that kind of assist in the timeliness of it and avoiding that elusive, perfect, uh, perfectly completed evaluation?
4: Sure. So I outline a five-step process, but I'll highlight maybe one of them, the second step, which I call situational awareness, which is just the idea that mapping out a block of time that you have when you're working with learners. So knowing exactly who you're gonna be working with for what amount of time really helps inform um, how, much, uh, how many goals you can set with that particular learner and then what would be a reasonable quantity of um, different areas that you can evaluate. So for example, I always say overlapping during a switch week on the ward. So having someone for three or four days totally different what you can accomplish with feedback and evaluation in that period than if you are going to overlap with your team for two full weeks. So I think one theory I've tried to promote is that making a very small upfront investment in time. I say this takes me seven minutes, which I think is a pretty reasonable amount of time to prepare to be an educator on the wards. That's my time investment. So I know who I'll be working with for what periods of time that gives me situational awareness, helps me set a reasonable number of goals per learner. Um, And then I think that probably the second most helpful part of this is There's probably different flavors of evaluation tools that we all complete, right? We have a different tool for daytime residents, a slightly different tool for our nighttime admitting residents. um, And it's, different tool for our daytime floating residents. And I think spending some time getting to know that evaluation tool, that same tool that you're going to fill out every time you have a daytime resident. And so we've digested those into shorthand templates so that you know the eight or nine topic areas that you'll be looking for. It just helps you focus your attention on the areas that you will then be asked to attest to on the evaluation form.
2: Well, Kate, thank you so much because that really kind of is a nice transition to the workshop that I attended by the team from Pittsburgh about um, being kind and clear and talking about the power of radical candor um, from the book by Kim Scott. The exact name of the workshop was Be Kind and Clear, Deliver High-Quality Feedback to Your Learners Using Radical Candor. And I have to say, as somebody who's kind of obsessed with feedback conversations, I felt like I was not only among my people but also really being pushed and uh, learning and kind of evaluating my own growth edges. And I think the biggest point for me is that they broke down kind of the um, quadrants based on how kind of um, how much you're caring personally and how much you're challenging directly, which is Kim Scott's kind of line about how to have these feedback conversations. They mentioned that you want to be in that quadrant of radical candor, which is high caring personally and very clearly and directly challenging. And if you're not there, that there's a the chance to be in the ruinous empathy where there's kind of you care, but you're also not at all being direct about the kind of feedback conversation you when you have or the bottom left corner where you neither care nor challenge directly, which is the manipulative insincerity. And then the one where you're like, yeah, I'm going to give you that. Feedback in terms of like challenging directly, but I don't really care, and that's called the obnoxious aggression. And they actually gave a they used you know when someone's flies down that they used that example as kind of what's the type of feedback you can give or how can you share that information with the person. And they also gave amazing uh, vignettes about what happens with learners and uh, the feedback conversations that can happen depending on which uh, quadrant you're in. And what I love what I loved about it is honestly it gave me um, it really empowered me to think about how when and I am having those feedback conversations, what is getting in the way? Like, have I developed that relationship? Do I uh, care and clearly care personally and have showed that to the learner? But also, am I being clear about what I observed and what feedback points based on observable behaviors I want to share? And being able to recognize that really effective feedback requires that challenging directly. Um, so, yeah, I had like many uh, just... Shook, shooken moments uh, during that workshop. They did a great job. Um, yeah, Molly, did you have any kind of takeaways from your day at AIM?
1: Well, I would just say in terms of the radical candor, I, I, the names are amazing. So <laughs> we definitely want to push ourselves not to be the
2: pessimistic manipulator. What was <laughs> close, that? close. The manipulative insincerity. Yeah, <laughs> Or the ruinous empathy. Like yeah. how dollar yeah. of a term that is? Yeah. But not one that we want to be, no. But I think so
1: true that, you know, our learner's, can't progress without getting that important feedback. And we are all here to support them and, and further their journey towards becoming ideal clinicians and, and also with our colleagues and our peers as well. So I think it's a good goal to push ourselves toward that. And sometimes those conversations can feel uncomfortable. But I think when we come at it from that standpoint of we have a relationship, we know we're in this together to try to improve, um, it can really, you know, in the end, be in a, a great Way of of furthering everyone's education and totally agree. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Yeah, Dr. Abby Spencer. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, sorry you got lost on the way here, but we're glad you could join us for part of this. Um, could you just give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Tell us a little bit about where you are professionally, and then what you something outside of medicine as well.
5: Sure. Thanks so much. Thanks for your patience and uh, sneaking me in here. So I serve as the vice chair of education for the Department of Medicine at WashU, and I also direct our Academy of Educators, which is the faculty development arm of our medical school. So long-time listener, big fan, uh, love all of the, the content you help to um, help educators do their job better. It's what I come into work to do every day. So really excited to meet you in person, learn
2: from you, and uh, hopefully share, share some pearls from some other great educators that are here. Awesome, Abby. And could you share maybe something about you personally that you enjoy? We've heard about gardening, among other things, baking, um, maybe something that uh, you like to do outside of medicine. Sure.
5: So I love musical theater. If I could do anything in the world, I would be Eponine in Les Mis on Broadway. Um, I have not got the call yet, so
2: I have kept my day job. This I is also- the audition tape. This so, is the audition tape. I can yeah. sing a few <laughs> notes. Yeah, exactly. uh, just get real <laughs> close to the mic and
5: just share the, the your favorite line. You could just send this to them. That would be great. Uh, and I also dream of being their casting director, too, just imagining, like, if people just came in and sang to me all day, I would know what part you should play, like, from, from the voice. So that that is where I dream. Amazing.
1: And any workshops that really stood out to you? Any pearls that you want to...
5: As in part to our listeners. Sure. So um, certainly, from the women's forum, uh, it was a it was a powerful day. I think when you get a room of women together from. All groups, all um, stages of their career, MDs, non MDs, administrators, physicians, senior leaders, even some business executives, to talk about sort of the same issues that everybody feels and thinks it's just them, I think was very impactful and powerful. And so being on a failure panel was sort of unique and vulnerable and interesting. You know, when you're invited to come and talk about failure, you're like, thanks for picking me. <laughs> Where do I start? But it really, I think was was empowering and healing for everyone of the sense of you know how to how to learn and how to step into your power as, as they called in and to really think about what your superpowers are. And I think a lot of them had some phenomenal pearls as far as getting to write your own story. Or people shared a lot about kind of career crises and moving institutions and being concerned about narratives that others may write and just the empowerment to kind of take back the pen and don't ever give the pen to your story to anybody else. I thought was really empowering. And so, whatever the circumstances are, you know, you write your story, you share it, you tell it. And I thought that was a really empowering thing to say. And others talked about, you know, be scared and then do it anyway. And it's things that, you know, it's easier to say or read or tagline or hashtag, but when people then talk about how they were scared and did it anyway, you can start to see how yourself, you could be scared and do it anyway. So I really thought I went to a faculty development one from the group from Brown, and it was sort of about how to collect. That was you, wasn't it? It was fantastic. I I just saw Jennifer Jeremiah, too. And I told her, I was like, I loved your workshop. (laughs) Um, I went in all sorts of screenshots of just great ways that were not only how to do it and how to teach it, but then how to operationalize it, get more. It just made it really, you can go home and do this. And I loved a lot of the ideas. And the situational awareness.
1: Was like,
5: oh my goodness. This is why we invited you. That me. is why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was one where I think in so many aspects of like, you know, coaching, leadership training, having been a PD and working with chiefs, that's all you're talking about. Never in a million years would I have connected that with assessments and, and when to, you know, to evaluate or to just know, you know you're going to have students and learners, you know they're going to need evaluations. Why would you not think about this and that? And it was one of those aha moments. I was just listening to... Um, the new Sally Helgeson one. Rising Together, so Marshall Goldsmith, who's this amazing coach, writes about leadership, gave the intro and he said, you know that something's brilliant when it's something that should have been written about or told 20 years ago and like someone finally does it and you're like, oh my gosh, of course. That was a moment for me where I was like, situational (laughs) awareness and assessments and and I love that moment.
4: Thank you so much so You're like, I'm making thank you you for making
5: my day. That. <laughs> um, I also was really struck and this may have come up in your pearls just the number of things um, that I think aligned a lot with the plenary with uh, you know history has its eyes on you plenary but the number of sort of microaggressions mistreatment pearls what to do the cases that just again gives a lot of ideas ideas and thoughts around how big this is, how universal it is how much work we have to do and i think that was a really empowering piece and theme of the meeting that that i take home and i have different you know specific pearls from so many of them but even the thought there was one where they talked about asking people up front at the beginning of the rotation you know, I certainly hope that this doesn't happen, but if they're either from a patient or from me or from someone, someone puts words out there that, that may land in a way that is a, is a microaggression or that is unveiling a, an unknown unconscious bias, how would you like us to handle that? And I thought that was really interesting because sometimes people just are like, leave me alone. I don't want to go there. Or they expect you to step in or want you to. And it's so different, that, that idea of just asking ahead of time. How might we want to handle this together, I thought was a, a great pearl. And I don't know if you guys covered this too, but there were two other workshops that I intended to go to and I had them marked and I even pulled their slides and ended up not because of those hallway conversations. And I think for the listeners that are you know more junior in their career or who may not even be thinking about how important that aspect is to the meeting, it's how you get your next job. It's how you get on that committee that you've been dreaming about. It's how you know who to call when you're struggling with something that means so much to you, a work that you want to achieve. There's not a workshop on it, but you know someone at this meeting has probably solved it. And just the way to be able to pay it forward and the people that we're asking, were all people who somewhere in the past two decades have been that person in the hallway for me. And so you sort of say, I was going to go to this workshop, but what do you need? And you give them that in that moment. And it always comes back around. And I think it's such an important piece, especially when you're talking to educators about a conference, is there's all the content you go and you get, but the relationships, the network, the reflections that you have, those hallway just, hey, can I ask you how you do this, is gold. And so I'll just put that out there, too.
1: I think that's a, a beautiful take-home point. Well, yes. I, I know people want to get to the next session. Um, so yeah, if, if other people have kind of take-home points or wonderful advice to pass on to early, uh, you know, early attendees, how do you make the most out of conferences? What do you love the most about attending
4: this week? I have a thought about how you make the most of conferences. And I have learned this the hard way. But something that my division does is extend our CME time after the conference. So I'll take an additional day when this conference is over, count it as CME time, and take that time to really process all of the notes I've taken, reflect on what I've learned, decide on what my priorities are. So I have learned the hard way if you don't take time to then consolidate what you've learned that you're just on to the next, mm-hmm. the next patient and the next evaluation to complete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think taking some post-conference CME time really helps you move forward with your big ideas.
0: Well, and I think we in a in a similar way, I think our program has tried to do that by at least having, if it's if it's not a full day, like a short meeting where those of us who have come get back together and share the kinds of things that we've learned and how. what are the things we want to implement in our program moving forward. Because just as you said, if you don't actually figure out how you're going to implement all the things you learned, you won't do it. And so, yeah, we're going to meet on Friday and talk through talk through some ideas.
3: No, the only thing I was going to add, because these things are great, I, I, you know, I've just for way too many years is things go into a pile, et cetera, et cetera, around things. So one of the things I've been doing is actively thinking about who isn't here on my team, my colleagues at home. And I have to tell you, this Alliance app, I love it this year because I hope you guys have all figured this out. There's a way that from the app you can send the materials by email to yourself or to other people, yes. right? So if I go to a session and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, we're, you know, one of the things is on, on medical education research and we're thinking about starting a center at my, in my unit. Um, and I'm like, oh, I have team members that are working on this with me. So I like have sent a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that will be another way to keep things happening.
5: One pearl I would add to the phenomenal ones you made as far as planning after mm-hmm. and then getting together is the pre-planning of who's going, what do we want to get to as a team or as a program, and how will we divide and conquer? And when you can bring your GME and UME people together to do that, say, you know, you hit these topics, you hit these ones, and then come back and then do all the things you said, then spend your day gathering it, then bring your team together, I think it can be really powerful. Well, I think we we talked about all the
1: amazing sessions already kind of among among the guests. Um, so I don't have a whole lot more to add, but I would just say this has been a wonderful conference to attend. I would recommend people uh, check out the work that the Alliance of Academic Internal Medicine is doing and think about attending AIM week next year and uh, yeah.
2: Totally agree. I have learned so many pearls from all the workshops, the plenaries and the um, open forum meetings. Uh, We just came from the primary care open forum and really just feels like uh, I am among uh, people who have shared values and shared um, and just a really rich and robust community. So thankful again to AIM for inviting us and for the kind of knowledge nuggets that we have uh, been kind of, what's it called? or a moose bouche for, 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 the, for this whole like season um, of medical edutainment. So it was amazing. Moose bouche sounds way better than nuggets. That's so. <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> Can a nugget be in a moose bouche? I think so. I right? mean, it could be because like, it could, like it could do just like a bite. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> This has been another episode of the Curbsiders Teach, our Curbsiders mini series. Get your show notes at slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Paul Williams for their support in this project. Thanks to Dr. Stuart Bergum for composing our theme music and to the team at Podpaste for editing our audio and supporting our production. Thanks to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram and John Ang on Twitter. Until next time, I've been Dr.
2: Molly Hoybline. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us as the Curbsiders Teach at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes, but not this one, um, are available for free CME uh, for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Khrznowska. Thank you so much for joining us in, uh, today and letting us bring you a little nugget or a moose boosh of medical edutainment. <laughs>